wants us to live differently here. Welcome to the third of five podcast interviews designed for the liturgical season of creation, recorded throughout the growing season of 2021. I'm your host, Reverend Jonathan Crane, priest in the Anglican Diocese of Edmonton. When planning this podcast, it didn't make sense to only speak to people in a rural context, as though land only exists somewhere beyond, out there. But the next two interviews focus on people who love the land in an urban context. In this interview, I speak with Dustin Badger, an educator, master gardener, writer, beekeeper, and ecologically inspired designer who lives in the Macaulay neighborhood of Edmonton. He also co-chairs the Edmonton Food Council, which works with City Council Administration to implement FRESH, Edmonton's food and urban agricultural strategy. scope of this podcast is uh, talking to people who care for a piece of land and uh, I've been learning about who Dustin is and um, interested how he uh, cares I think for all of Edmonton in a way that I haven't heard other people speak about um, and, and so want to have a conversation with him and, and let him tell that story for himself. Um, Dustin, I don't know if you want to say a bit about yourself. Yeah, thanks. Um, thanks for having me. Thanks for asking. I didn't grow up in Edmonton. I grew up on an acreage outside of a little farming town northeast of the city. And so gardening, you know, tending has, has been a part of uh, my life for as long as I can remember. But I have to admit, as a kid, I did not like it, right? Like nobody, no kid wants to go and weed. No kid wants to go and um, I'd go to my uncle's and, and pick rocks in the spring for, uh, out of the fields. Uh, this stuff is not fun. Uh, I spent a lot of my time just across the road. We had um, primary forests, so just like crown land, never been cleared before. and. Like that was really our playground. And so my brothers and I and all the neighbor kids, we'd all head out into the forest and we'd build forts and then tear those forts down and recycle all the material to build another bigger fort and repeat that process. And, and I think like running around that forest was really formative for me. It wasn't until I got older that I, I sort of realized that like there's really like a, a big juxtaposition between the forest and the acreage. And so the acreage, which by the way, I absolutely love now and I've come around to all the gardening stuff, still don't like re weeding or picking rocks, but um, you know, it was a lot of work. Like it was, it was, it was mowing, it was weeding, it was, um, you know, picking up all the sticks in the spring from the, the laurel leaf willows that they dropped over winter. And that forest, there was like none of that, right? Like you didn't weed it and you didn't till it. You didn't have to pick up sticks or rocks. Uh, it just kept kind of doing its thing. And it wasn't until I took a permaculture design class that I realized that what was happening is the acreage is trying to turn into a forest 
if you were to uh, if you were to stop all of that work, you know, you're going to accumulate sticks and weeds and and uh, you know you're going to find new species coming in to take advantage of that, and they're going to bring seeds, and the whole thing would just over time turn into that forest that I played in. And so, what I found interesting was like, what is it about a typical, what is it about a typical garden or a typical human maintained landscape that makes it so challenging? And what is it about an ecosystem that gives it some resiliency um, such that it doesn't need that level of intervention? Uh, I don't want to say that ecosystems don't require or don't have human intervention, especially here in North America, because we have, you know, if we go back 13,000 years, we're under a kilometer of ice. And as soon as the ice melted, people were here. And so our ecosystems have always coexisted with humans. Humans are a keystone species. But what is it about the fact that, you know, if you stopped maintaining the garden, it's going to turn into a forest. And if you stop maintaining the forest, it's going to be able to more or less continue to do its thing. And so um, that really led me into systems thinking and ecology and thinking about uh, biodiversity and how to apply that into a, into a, like a, 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 a human design. So if I understand now how a forest functions and I'm building a garden, are there some lessons that I can take from that forest, apply it to the garden so that maybe it doesn't require daily weeding or daily watering? Maybe it's, it's still not a forest, but can I, can I align that design, align that garden in such a way that it works with and mimics these sort of larger patterns and principles that you find in nature? And um, I was really kind of starting to think about this stuff at the same time or, or a little bit after I, I, I uh, finished my education degree at the University of Alberta. And you know, really got interested in cities as well. So I'm in Edmonton. What does that mean? Like I grew up running around a forest and hanging out on the acreage. And now I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm amongst people in concrete. And uh, I found myself really drawn to the ravines, to the river valley, uh, but then started to think about cities too as like, as analogous to, as, as analogies to forests. You have, in a forest, you have all of these connections and all of this diversity coming together um, in this big web of life. And I think in a community, like what a community is, are, are, are different kinds of people coming together and forming connections. And you get resiliency in that. And a city is, is sort of just, it's, it's a community of communities. And then you get the built environment in there and so you've got you've got like literal fit, you, you have actual infrastructure like roads and, and and you know wires and pipes and all of that stuff that physically connect us um, and it's it's a place a city is a place for maximizing connections the reason why people are moving to cities is because you have opportunities um, you have serendipity you can come across new people new ideas and I don't think that that's counter to nature. I think that is 
literally what nature is doing. A, a forest is all, an ecosystem is also a place for maximizing connections and opportunities. And so each time, you know, each thing creates, like, like as a tree grows, it creates all of these, these niche, niches for other things. And then they move in and they create new niches. And so I've really become to, to see ecosystems and cities as trying to do the same thing. And I, I also further believe that some of the challenges that we have with cities are because we've tried to separate these two systems. So if you think about, if you accumulate people, you also accumulate waste. Um, well, what is waste? Waste is essentially a, um, it's essentially a niche that's unfulfilled. So in a forest, when the leaves fall on the ground, they have a use, right? They break down their food, their habitat for all kinds of things, and it gets cycled back into the system and further increases the potential of the system. In the city, we view waste as, um, as a hazard, and it can be, so I'm not proposing, let's not just throw it everywhere, but you know, maybe we don't need to rake up all the leaves and throw them in a landfill. Maybe we don't need to, um, you know, maybe, maybe, we don't, maybe some of the, the waste streams that we have are actually opportunities. And so, you know, if we're thinking like an ecosystem, can we design that problem out of, out of existence? Um, and can we design other problems out of existence? And so I've kind of viewed my work over the past 15 years as trying to find ways to recombine these two parallel um, yeah parallel parallel networks parallel systems because I don't see them as as separate and a city that actively invites and and partners with and loves the natural world some people refer to that as a biophilic city uh, uh, philia being being loving right so uh, a, a, a life loving city what does that what does that look like? Um, what, what, does, what do boulevards look like in a life-loving city? What do parks look like in a life-loving city? How do we treat water in a city that loves and embraces life? And, you know, we also have a lot of these, we've got some challenges that we're really starting to see. Climate change, this year is the hottest year on record and last year was the hottest year on record and the year before that was the hottest year on record. And, you know, it, it, my partner, she was saying yesterday that like, she was talking to her, her father, uh, who was complaining about the heat and she said, well, it, like enjoy it. Um, because this is probably the coolest summer you will feel for the rest of your life. And that is a terrifying thought. And so, um, you know, are there ways that a life loving city could mitigate some of those challenges? Um, and that's, that's kind of really where I'm at now, is how do, I, how do you find ways to embrace life in the city, to marry these two networks, but also do it in a way that, that I think if you can do that, you can, you can, you can benefit nature and you can benefit the occupants of, of this place. Anyway, that was a really big, long rant for a single question. <laughs> no, that's good. Um, and uh, I'm, I'm reflecting that many of us have lived in cities and not come to that kind of systems thinking, yeah. that kind of way. Um, 
How, what, what have been some of the helpful thoughts or influences that help move you to that? I, I think it's a really uh, sort of compelling story. It's kind of a narrative of what a city is and what it can be. Um, what, what brought you to, what are some of the pieces that brought you to that? I think even just like strictly from a, from a, des, like a good design point of view, uh, partnering with nature often makes a lot of sense. If you think about, um, the amount of work that goes into, let's just say turf management, right? Either as the, on the individual level of your yard or your boulevard, but also, you know, all of the boulevards around the city, our parks, um, that is a tremendous amount of resources that, that go into ensuring that that lawn doesn't turn into a forest, which is what your lawn is trying to do when it starts to become a little bit weedy. And so I'm not saying every lawn or every park needs to be a forest, but are there ways that we can manage turf or are there different models that we can employ that, that push it maybe a little bit in that direction? Um, and I think you can, you can reduce the amount of resources, the amount of time, the amount of money spent on that. A challenge I think that we have in cities is we've so kind of divided ourselves or moved away from like natural systems that you know, people have very firm, strong views of what a lawn should look like or what a park should look like. And so even during COVID here, the city kind of let things go a little bit wild and people sort of lost their mind because there was extra dandelions. Uh, so we have to challenge some of that. But um, right now my neighborhood is going through neighborhood renewal and so they're deciding like, where are the bike lanes going in? Um, but, you know, even just, I would love the city to take a look at renewal from, you know, really focus on uh, climate change in the sense of like, how do you, how do you put in a neighborhood or neighborhood infrastructure that doesn't create urban heat island effects where the concrete is just going to heat up and make it inhospitable? Or how do you create uh, neighborhoods where uh, if you have an extreme rain, it doesn't flood everybody's basement or as it should, or as, as currently designed, go into the storm system, overwhelm that storm system and then cause pollution for people downstream. And so can we build you know, permeable, you know, water absorbing features into our landscape so that, you know, every yard, every boulevard, every park is also a part of our flood mitigation strategy, um, which once again, will keep water in the landscape, which, you know, means that you can grow all kinds of vegetation and that benefits the ecosystem, but it also means that you're not flooding or polluting people downstream. And then if you have a period of drought, it also means that, you know, you're, you're, you're less susceptible to it. And so I think a lot of this stuff is just, just good design. And depending on who I'm talking to, like some people are really, you know, some people are kind of really into this, like, you know, city is an ecosystem kind of view. And there's other people who will roll their eyes at it. And so if, if possible, like, then let's just, let's just go to the design piece. Like, putting in this water harvesting feature into the boulevard is going to save you money and time and prevent basements from flooding. Um, by the way, it's also partnering with nature, but you know, if that's not your thing, don't worry about it. So, um, that, that aspect of design, um, seems to be central to what you're talking about. Can you say a bit 
you know, I, I don't know, I mean, we think of landscape design, but that seems like a, a very central piece to what you're talking about. Can you say more about that? Yeah. Um, so, we, I mean, we could go willy-nilly and just throw nature everywhere, and there would be lots of benefits to that. But, um, you know, I, I, one of the advantages that we have when we design is, is we can, we have sort of the power of placement. Um, so, as an example, you know, if you take a look at some of the maps, some, some data for the city of Edmonton, like we, we know where the, where the flooding happens. We know where um, temperature extremes are the most because of, you know, no shade and excess concrete. Uh, we know where uh, poverty or food security are, um, are centered. And so can we, using the tools of nature, consciously design solutions into those, those, those landscapes? And so can we put more vegetation or more permeable landscapes, or at the very least not put more hardscaping, um, you know, above uh, or uphill from areas prone to flooding? Can we provide more shade trees in locations that are prone to excessive heat? Can we, um, uh, you know, integrate edible landscaping into, uh, you know, into communities that are maybe food, food insecure or maybe just communities that are, that are you know, looking for um, that kind of connection to the natural world or uh, into gleaning. And so I, I'm sort of like making some phases here in the sense that I, I want to be careful to not suggest that planting a few apple trees in a neighborhood that is food insecure is going to solve that problem. I think fundamentally um, food insecurity is a, is a issue of of poverty and often folks who are um, struggling to survive in that sense don't have the surplus time to go and pick a bunch of apples and make some pie out of it. Um, but you know, can we can we consciously take a look at um, opportunities around the city to, to to place nature in ways that mitigate some of those those challenges? And you know, I think one of the challenges or one of the one of the struggles with that is it's maybe a little bit like site specific like if we take a look at where we're at right now um, and we're trying to decide what and where to plant like that'll that'll depend on you know how people and how nature and how the sun and how water interact with that site and so it's a little bit it's hard to take one of these solutions and just apply it across the board it really is um, a little bit more conscious than that but but I do think that if we're intentional about integrating nature into our built environments we can provide a lot of benefits for ourselves and then the flip side is we can actually provide a lot of benefits for the natural world right like um, the so design allows us to step back and pull all those pieces together and, and, and kind of yeah uh, move into a more creative space um, and I'm hearing to, to even look 
have a really hard look at the problems yeah. and, and how we can mitigate those or work them in a cycle. There's this design um, technique in permaculture called uh, needs and yields analysis. Okay. Uh, and so what it is, is it's just a way to think about how to connect elements in a design. So we know that ecosystems are resilient because of the connections they've formed. Um, so how do you how do you bring that into the design of a of a a city or a, a backyard? And um, the idea is that each element in a design has certain needs in order to function and offers certain yields in return. And so you can take something like um, like a tree. So its needs I mean it needs it needs sun and water and healthy soil um, and a healthy soil life uh, but it might also need a little bit of wind protection uh, it might need um, somebody to to pick its fruit uh, or, or, or prune it or tend it and you have something like a house which you know it requires you know a source of energy to to heat or cool it um, it requires, um, you know, occupants to be able to, to take care and maintain it. Uh, it offers hopefully shelter. Um, it offers uh, a windbreak. It offers uh, water harvesting. If you think about the, the water coming off of the roof, if you think about the south side of your house, it's, well, it's this big thermal mass. And so it provides a microclimate there. So if we can think about even just those two elements, a tree in the house, and we can think about how do we place them relative to one another so that they both can benefit so that you have a house that gets maybe shade in the summer so that it doesn't require as much energy. Um, you have a house that's providing a little bit of a microclimate and perhaps water for the tree. And so now you've got just two things in your system where you're designing out some of those, those needs and yields are, are, are aligning so that you can kind of remove yourself from from the equation a little bit. And uh, and that's just like two things, right? So if you're in a yard and you're talking about, you know, a vegetable garden, some trees, a house, a sidewalk, a fence, a bird bath, a compost bin, well then if you were to break down each of those things, what does a bird bath need? Um, well, it needs water. Uh, it needs, uh, you know, maybe it's made out of concrete, so maybe it, it yields a little bit of thermal mass. Maybe it's on a pedestal, so now it's something a vine can crawl up. And so if you think about each piece of your system as performing multiple functions, you can start to consciously design um, or consciously connect these, these, these needs and yields of this, of this system. And so a sidewalk becomes a water harvesting structure and thermal mass. It's not just a thing that you walk on. Um, you know, fences, vertical space for habitat or for things to grow, not just this thing that separates you from your neighbor. And on a larger kind of city scale, um, I mean, roads are thermal mass, roads are water harvesting structures, they're transportation corridors. Um, you know, boulevards are right now, I mean, it's mostly a place for lawn and trees to live, which is fine but it could also be part of our flood mitigation strategy we could potentially work in edible landscaping so it could be a source of a little bit of food but also probably a lot of 
community connection kind of opportunities. And so how do you, how do you map out, I think part of creating conscious designs is mapping out those, those requirements of each of the elements in your design and then trying to put them together in a really conscious way so that they can form those connections, form those relationships and start working um, like, like an ecosystem because that's, that's, like, that's ultimately what an ecologically inspired designer is doing. They're trying to set things up in a way that is conducive to forming connections or relationships. And that doesn't even have to be a garden, right? I mean, you could be, my background's education. So if I'm in the classroom, how can I set this classroom up in such a way that facilitates connections, either you know between the students themselves, between the students and, and myself, certainly between the students and the curriculum I'm trying to teach them. How can you set that curriculum up? How can I teach a topic so that it's not just, hey, today we're covering this like thing and it has nothing to do with anything else you've learned and you're never gonna use it in real life. How do I set that outcome up in such a way that it is directly linked to something they already know and understand? And how can I set it up in such a way that is like, it's gonna lead to some further possibilities or further connections down the road? Um, how can I set up my class so that it fits into the context of you know the other things that they're learning about in in different disciplines or how can you set up a school to facilitate connections between um the community or between other schools and so like you know in that situation we're dealing with humans we're dealing with the layout of the school and the community but we're mostly dealing with like minds and so, which in and of themselves are all about connections, right? If you think about synapses and stuff, so there's, there's a little bit of like self um, similarity there. But um, yeah, you can, I think you can apply that connections approach to design in a lot of different contexts. So I'm hearing this all interrelating, you know, what you're talking about, the city as a, a place of connection and then, you know, the garden, but, but hearing how that also feeds into a human context and that's um, certainly been our experience with community gardening yeah. is this incredible thing that as we're all caring for our little garden plot um, there's this other thing growing which was relationships and community yeah. and resilience so that um, you know a small thing there's a little bit of graffiti on our shed and like the next day there's a whole team of people who are out to deal with this and uh, just a sense of something that was there that wasn't there before uh, created through these relationships. Absolutely. Yeah. I've often said, and this is not to diminish the food production side of things, but I've often said that the biggest thing that a community garden produces is community. Um, you certainly get food out of it as well, but it's, it's a really great catalyst for coming together with other people to, and in sort of this like conscious way sharing resources and that often leads to you know it bleeds into other parts of their lives right you you meet folks and and come across opportunities that you wouldn't have otherwise so it's you know community gardens are fantastic for that we haven't um talked about where we're recording um and maybe this is a good time uh, sure. to, to do that so we're outside um people listening can probably hear the wind yeah it's a pretty windy day uh we're sitting under an apple tree uh, which I didn't realize until you 
pointed it out um, to apple trees to apple trees behind us yeah. uh, but do you want to say you were giving me a bit of a tour before and and the different groups that are involved um, so maybe describe where we are because people can't see it and the different groups that are involved just in sketch yeah so we are um, we can get up and walk we're to sitting in a, in a in an old neighborhood actually so this used to be um, I'm guessing seven to nine houses on this on this space here uh, and so the houses are all gone it was a storage facility for Northlands for many years and then Northlands set it up as an urban farm and for the past um, for the past uh, seven years it's, it's operated as an urban farm uh, sometime in the last four or five years it, Northlands invited lots of different gardeners on site and so it, it kind of operates as one big large community garden slash farm but uh, one full half of it is is uh, gardened collectively by a group that calls themselves Milk Thistle Farm. Um, they mostly grow food for themselves and family and neighbors, uh, though they have in the past also set up a little farm table at the entrance here. We have the Multicultural Health Brokers. We have the Mennonite Center for Newcomers. We've got a really kind of innovative gardening group that call themselves the Gardeners of the Galaxy, and they've got this really fantastic whimsical garden. And then at the uh, south, uh, one of the south corners, I have been propagating trees. And so it's a little tree farm. It's only 1,500 square feet. And uh, it's mostly interesting local plants that aren't very common. So trying to propagate those out and then trialing a few things that, that should be able to grow here, but no one's really tried before. And the goal now is uh, through a project called Subscriber to get those plants into um, like community gardens around the city or uh, winds picking up. So to get those into schoolyards, to get those plants into um, garden spaces like the one that you have at the church, uh, to get them into uh, the hands of communities and in particular to try to use some of that that data that we talked about before of you know where's the flooding um where's the community need where's the urban heat island effect to to place these plants or to to be able to support projects in parts of the city that that could really benefit from them and maybe don't have the financial uh capital to to source a bunch of plants on their own and so that's kind of the vision for that there but the but the whole farm itself it's it's made up of i don't actually know how many gardeners there are here i've never heard official count every time i come here there's always people here and you you see the same same folks and you get to know each other but uh yeah there's always new folks that i've that i've never met before which is also kind of exciting and it it sort of is this big i don't know communal multicultural um, polyculture farm with uh, chickens and sunflowers and all the vegetables and trees and uh, yeah it's kind of an exciting exciting place to to hang out it has now moved uh, into the hands of explore Edmonton and so I'm excited to see what they're gonna do with it the uh, farm is in the process of, of doubling and so um, yeah it's a it's a really a gem in the in the city of Edmonton it's always struck, so it's right behind the Save on Foods we often shop at, and of course, you know, uh, K Days and yeah, and and all this kind of infrastructure. Yeah, um, and it always struck me as an interesting counterpoint to that. Sure, 
you know, in the midst of all, uh, you know, huge concrete buildings, some of the biggest um, parking building, lots in the, parking lots for, in the yeah. city. And then th there's been this little farm cropping up and, and as you say, it's expanding. I mean, yeah. who, who knows, maybe it'll take over. Yeah, we'll just keep going for more. the whole 160 acre former Northland site. Um, yeah, Borden Park is is to our east. Uh, we have more sort of storage lots, but um, I guess that goes all the way down to uh, 82nd Street. Yeah, so we're we're kind of in. Um, it is a bit of a weird spot. We're not. We're pretty centrally located, but it's also just a couple of blocks off the beaten path. And if you didn't know it was here, you'd you'd um, I think be really surprised to to drive by it and go, what is, what is happening? So it's, it's a, it's a great, it's a great little space. And I think, you know, speaking for myself personally, um, trying to grow trees, it, growing trees is something I've done in the past, but, you know, trying to play around with scaling that up and trying new varieties and figuring out the best way to get them into the hands of, of, of community members. It has been a really, it's been really useful to have 1,500 square feet of space to play with and to learn and to make mistakes. Um, and so it, I see a farm like this in the city as a really important sort of catalyst or incubation space for, um, for new gardeners, for potentially you know, small businesses and certainly for, for building community. One of the best things that an elder gardener told me was that uh, and she's been gardening for years, but she said every year is an experiment. Yeah, and that took all the anxiety out of it It's like oh, I might get it wrong totally. this year and that's okay because yeah. you know Bonnie is still getting it wrong and learning things, you know after years and years you know. completely um, I've often said that there's no Such thing as like a you know somebody with a green thumb like we describe people as having green thumbs I think the difference between somebody that we would think of as having a green thumb and somebody that doesn't is that um, green thumbs are, I don't know what the right word is. I wanna say optimistic or maybe naive. Um, <laughs> it's, it's like, put it this way, if I thought, if I, if, I, if I kept a record of every plant I killed, I would have stopped years ago, right? It's right. just like, you grow a bunch of stuff or you sow a bunch of seeds, you make a mistake, you know, you miss a water, you miss some watering on a, a really hot week or something and everything dies. And unless you're kind of like optimistic or naive, like I said, I'm not sure which one, um, you know, that can be really discouraging and it, and it sucks. Like no, nobody, no gardener wants to kill a bunch of plants or put in a bunch of work and then, you know, not see, not see it thrive. Um, but I think the difference between somebody who gets better at it and somebody who maybe says like oh no like i i tried gardening once and and it, 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 you know i killed everything uh is just that kind of that that optimistic outlook that like well the next time i try it i'll do it a little bit different and it's going to be a little bit better and if you if you do that every year it is going to get a little bit better so yeah no i still you know i still try stuff and it just fails but yeah, every year it's every year you learn something new. Every year it's a little bit better. Do you want to tell us about some of the trees you're growing and 
uh, yeah. maybe some of your favorites or, yeah. or even I know you've like uh, sourced seeds from the city and, and you do you have some favorite trees in the city or Ooh. what are what are some of your let's go do you favorite? want to go walk sure. down there and then we sure. can actually see them face to face and uh, we can point them and jog my memory as we go <coughs> That? No, that's not me. Are these second-year carrots? Um, I'm not. This is some kind of flower. I'm actually not sure what what this is, but it does it does kind of have that. I think it might be Cosmos. I could okay. be wrong though. I'd have to see the flower on it. Yeah. I do. Um, I love the idea of uh, perennializing annual foods, right? Like, so I grow I grow a lot of perennial plants. There's just something for me. And maybe this goes back to what we were just talking about. Um, you know, you can grow a, I don't know, some spinach and, you know, it's like, it's like a, you get, you enjoy it for a year. Now you could collect seed and seed and you can keep, you know, keep it going for longer. But there's something about it, like a tree that has the ability to like just go for decades that I really love. And I feel like feel like it's a good good bang for my time um not to mention you can take something like you know you get an apple tree established and it can produce hundreds of pounds of fruit or a walnut producing you know hundreds of pounds of nuts and so you get this it's it's still food production it's still gardening it's just the time horizon has shifted a little bit which is something that i'm a little bit obsessed with is this idea of time and in particular long long-term thinking which i'll show you some plants in here that i think sure. yeah i think align great. with that um but oh i was mentioning the um I, the i love the an, the perennializing annual plants and so this idea of like growing out a bunch of carrots and then harvesting 90 percent of them but leaving the other 10 percent to grow back the next year and just like self-seed. I love the I love the idea of carrots just like dropping seed on the ground like dill and it's just like you only need to plant dill once and you'll just always have dill. Um, I love the idea of trying to do that with carrots or any other annual vegetable. Um, <coughs> excuse me. So we're looking, we're kind of on the edge of the nursery here um, and it's surrounded by quite a few larger plants. So these are some willows. These varieties I got from a friend who, um, who weaves. So these are all weaving varieties. So they have these really long, wispy branches. These should actually like be- Like for making baskets. For making baskets, nice. yeah. Yeah, so she's just outside of the city and she, um, yeah, she, she does it like uh, professionally. And so she gave me some cuttings. And so all these really wispy willows around the outside are all, all for, specifically selected for weaving and would these grow into like a huge tree like these will grow into willows, like or? a big huge shrub okay yeah this okay. is uh these they basically these things keep getting longer and they will thicken up and then send out more shoots but this is something that can pretty much be be hacked back so it can be coppiced cut right back mm -hmm. um every year and it'll just keep sending out oh, okay. these these cool. new branches there are some taller uh willows along the back and those are from a large willow tree uh, that uh, was named in the Heritage Trees of Alberta book. It's in Old Strathcona, just off of Saskatchewan Drive and Calgary Trail. I used to live right next to it. Hmm. And like those willows are like three years old and they're like 10 feet tall, some of them. 
the parent tree is like a hundred and it's it's absolutely massive so mm. those can't live here forever those will actually come out and hoping to partner with a, a local artist to do some sort of willow sculpture with them uh, so we'll yeah we'll, we'll see what happens there and then there's some currents and things we have uh, that same sculpture artist friend actually donated some of the plum trees and the cherry trees and so the the garden is set up where there's these seed beds um, so they're kind of long I want to say raised beds but they're just they're mounded there's no mm -hmm. there's no wooden border and so that's where a lot of the seeds uh, the seeds go in for growing trees and then every few rows there's a row of larger plants and that just provides a little bit of shade and a little bit of uh, wind protection for the smaller for the smaller trees so but let's um we can sneak in here these guys have gotten so big that they're kind of blocking the pads a little bit but um yeah, this here, this first tree that we come across, this is um, this is a honey locust. Okay. There's a few of them in the city. Like I know of, there's one in Borden Park just over here that's fairly large, maybe the biggest in the city that I've seen. Uh, yeah, there's a handful of them. They're native to North America. And uh, if you go to Africa, there's a relative of this plant called an acacia. Okay. And acacia has these big, long bean pods uh, that elephants love. And so the elephants go and they harvest these pods, they've got a sweet flesh, and then the seed goes through the, through the digestive system of the elephant out the other side, and the seed gets broken down slightly in this process, and then it germinates um, at the end of it. And so this tree here is a North American relative. It's in the same, it's in the bee and peen family, also grows a big long pod with sweet flesh. I was gonna say it looks a bit like a caragana. It, it all same family is carragana okay. would be the same family yep but carragana is a shrub this is going to be this is like but it'll grow as like a big giant it, it's it's sort of like the size of our elms okay oh wow and it'll you'll get all these pods that hang and sort of rattle in the wind um and in north america the seeds just kind of fall on the ground um and that's because it's lost its american elephants and so our Native American elephants, like the elephants in Africa, would come and collect the pods, would eat the pods, it goes through the elephant, comes out the other side, and you get more baby honey locust trees. And so the elephants we're talking about are our mammoths and our mastodons. Mm. And so this, this tree still doesn't know that the mammoths are gone. Mm. Um, and so as a result, it's, it's, it's not getting spread the only way that like these seeds are too big for other animals to like consume or pick up. So if anything, they might like roll a little bit downhill. So in the wild, you kind of find these in valleys more than anything, mm. but um, yeah, they're, they're a really neat tree. And so wanted to try to grow out, grow out more of them. Um, this here is another plant that would have been consumed by megafauna. You can usually tell those plants that were consumed by megafauna is because they have like spikes which are like some thorns which are like eat my fruit don't eat me um but that is an osage orange um we have over here some really small little walnuts but there's many more walnuts over there those are all uh harvested locally off of some uh, some local trees native to north america not native to here we have we have local walnut trees in Edmonton. yeah so uh black and white walnuts okay um 
I see more white walnuts, the butternuts, than than black walnuts. Okay, butternut, but they, I've heard of. They are around, yeah. Um, Juggalins, uh, oh, I'm gonna mess up the Latin name. Cinera, Cinea, C-I-N, you know what? Butternut, walnut. <laughs> um, the, uh, yeah, there's some really nice large trees in the city of Edmonton. Mm. They, uh, yeah, in September all drop their nuts and I, I go and I, um, knock on doors and, and collect them because often they unfortunately just get thrown out right. so if they get stuck in the ground and turned into hundreds of more uh, little uh, walnut trees then then even better the black walnut which I have some of in here do live longer than the the, the white walnuts they're slower growing but you know they'll live for 500 years hmm. um, over here we have another kind of experiment that's going very well these are all mulberry trees. So um, this is a white mulberry. It's a, a subspecies of white mulberry that's found at its most northern range. So it's often called a Russian white mulberry. There are a few mulberry trees in the city of Edmonton, but um, I don't think it would be an exaggeration to say that there are more mulberries in this few square feet mm. than there are mulberries in the city at the moment. But that's, that's kind of a, an interesting one. Um, I've got some little burr oaks here. These are actually nice. taken off of a, a tree at my parents' place on the acreage where I grew up. Um, but we have some small little uh, American beech uh, over here. If we take another step. These larger trees, these are Capilano apricot seedlings. Beech trees, I think of those as being in a different biome than we have here. Yeah, so these are these are native to Amer like like to the Americas, but more like East Coast. Yeah. Okay. So like deciduous forest. Yeah. Uh, I don't know of any in the city of Edmonton, so we'll we'll see Find how out. they do. Yeah, we'll see, we'll see how they do. Experiment. Experiment. Like I said, a lot of this is like experiments, and then some of this is is like stuff that I found locally that's you know kind of interesting to grow out. You know, speaking of experiments, like this here is. Uh, a citrus mm -hmm. so it is a, a hearty bitter orange you can see most of them did not make the winter <laughs> they have thorns on them they're again. pretty spiky they're pretty spiky ow they're pretty spiky and um yeah they're like a zone six citrus okay. so you know you can see here that most of them did not make last winter but, but we'll see how the couple did. did right yeah. and if i mean the one thing i like about seeds is they're relatively inexpensive you can grow out a thousand of them and if a couple survive then maybe you've identified a few individuals that have like what it takes to survive in edmonton exactly some examples of just how important um seed sources is, is is i have well, let's walk down here. <clears throat> so I collected some Ohio Buckeye locally. And I had a friend bring back some Ohio Buckeye from Vancouver. So exactly the same species. So there's the Ohio Buckeye from Edmonton. Those are the seeds there. And there's the Ohio Buckeye from Vancouver. And so you can tell just that like, you know, the, the, the local ones are doing that much better. Hmm. Um, now they would have all, you know, come from an original, you know, like, like where they're native to, like they're not native to Edmonton, they're not native to Vancouver. Um, 
but there's a lot of genetic variability in in a, in seeds and so sometimes it's just it's trial and error and seeing seeing what works or growing out a whole bunch of something and then you know keep propagating from some of the some of the surviving ones yeah. play off the genetic yeah exactly play variability off the another interesting this is goji. This is goji. Yeah, this the is Edmonton, a this is an Edmonton, Edmonton goji. goji. And yeah, you help help yourself to some goji berries. Sure. Um, and actually, I have a goji plant for you. Oh, amazing! Um, just kind of on the beehive here, and so <coughs> yeah, these are these are some some gojis that are taken from the go some goji plants that our uh, Chinese community brought over to Edmonton a hundred years ago, and you know, so these are either you know, cuttings that have been passed down from generation to generation, or, you know, the cuttings or seeds from those original plants, but they've, they're very hardy to hear. They, they never get any dieback in the wintertime. I have purchased goji before at the store and I've had it like almost die back to the, to the snow line. And so it's, a lot of it is just where, you know, where it was from. Um, and there's a whole section in the River Valley, I think near the Shaw Conference. Yeah, if you, like from the funicular, underneath the Hotel McDonald, um, the courtyard, the hotel, I think it's the Marriott Courtyard, mm -hmm. to all the way to the Shaw Conference Center, it's pretty much all goji berry. Oh, wow. Yeah, okay. there's thousands of plants down there. Um, it kind of grows a little bit like a blackberry in the sense that you, you get these really long branches wispy branches which also send off shoots and they get heavy and they touch the ground and uh it can kind of it can slowly walk and so and then this one right beside it is uh, what i thought was a blackberry for years and it's founded in my local community um turns out it's a black raspberry so it's not a blackberry it's not a raspberry it's not a cross between a blackberry and a raspberry it's its own species which is commonly referred to as a black raspberry, but it looks and grows um, and has a fruit pretty much like a, like a blackberry. The, the fruit maybe is, it's still black, but it maybe tastes a little bit more like a raspberry. But um, yeah, I mean, it's, it's also kind of a monster plant. Like I, I kind of regret <laughs> uh, intercropping. Yeah. yeah, I mean, just because they're so... I mean, they get chopped back to like six inches above the ground every year so that I can turn all this like vegetation into cuttings. But um, yeah, they really... I've left, the, I've left the nursery like bleeding before from the, the black raspberry because it it's got some pretty, pretty gnarly thorns on it's it. It's like a rose. Yeah. Yeah, and it's, uh, they're like backward facing spines so they like hold on to you. Um, but what else do we have in here? These are all uh, butternuts, all white walnuts. So there's, you know, there's probably a couple hundred little trees in there. Um, but we have some Manchurian walnuts kind of intermingled here. This is a, a plant called a Kentucky coffee tree. It's native to North America. Also would have been consumed by our megafauna. Hmm. Um, does very well in Alberta. Actually, one of the, I was talking with a dendrologist from the University of Alberta. Um, and he was sort of commenting on the fact that you've got these plants further south that end up doing fine here and uh, his explanation was that um, you know in between the the like the interglacial periods you perhaps had a lot of these plants here locally 
and I'm not saying specifically Kentucky coffee tree, but um, but what happens is you know the gla the glaciers move down and they pretty much scrape the landscape, and these species, you know, they survive in their southern ranges, and the glaciers retreat, and they you know then have to slowly work their way further north over thousands of years. And in the case of things like honey locust or Kentucky coffee tree, you know, they're only moving by animals. And so their megafauna are gone, but you know, people are moving them around obviously. And so uh, it makes sense that some of these species, you know, that maybe move really slowly can do fine here. They just haven't made it here yet. They, they maybe used to be here. Yeah. Pre-glacier or something like right. that. I'd actually like to find, um, there's a, there's a, a, an artist in Vancouver, not in Vancouver, in BC. Um, I should find the name. Oliver is his first name. And uh, he did a controversial project uh, where he got some funding to plant native plants um, on some land in BC. And he ended up he ended up calling the, the planting the, the Neo-Eocene. And so he looked through the fossil record to identify plants that lived at that location the last time that CO2 levels are where they're at right now. Interesting. And so he picked plants that lived there like 200 million years ago. And that's what he planted. And so he got his hand slapped because it's like he's supposed to be planting native plants. Well, then he made the argument like these are native plants. All of these plants are native plants. And in the end, all the plants were allowed to stay because he was able to sort of make his point. That and they these survived. Are, and they're, they're, yeah, they're, they're surviving. And not only are they surviving, but it's like arguably they are... They're finding may, their home again. Maybe have found a home again. Maybe where they're located now is becoming less suitable for them. And by moving them to that location where we know historically they've grown, um, you know, maybe it's a way of, of kind of anticipating the changing ecosystems that, we're, that we might experience. Now, there's all kinds of philosophical things that you could get into there, right? So obviously there's, there's like, what does that mean to bring in new plants? Which is something that I have to think about, you know, even in this context, right? Kentucky coffee tree is not native to here. Um, and uh, it, is, it is a species at risk, so it's like, is bringing this up here extending its range? Is that is that increasing opportunities? Is it is it is it increasing potential in particular for the species? But also, like, what does that mean for the native landscape? Mm -hmm. And so, those are those are often um, I, those are the kinds of questions that I I, uh, I think are really interesting to think about. I think the elephant in the room is is climate change, in that. Ooh, in that like, you know, even our native species, like I posed this to the city of Edmonton on a webinar a couple weeks ago. It's like when we're choosing species for our boulevard trees or our parks, like how do you, how do you find the balance between protecting our native species and ecologies while also trying to plant for a climate that is rapidly shifting. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, it's a can of worms. Imagining that will be zone five. Right. You know, or and plus. and in some of these cases, it's like, do we have an ethical obligation to move plants further north that are struggling in their native ranges? So I think an example of that would be these these butternuts. So <laughs> these are taken from local trees. In their native range, they're 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 really struggling because there's a blight that's almost wiped them out. Mm. So they actually thrive here, and they do not thrive where they're native to, and. You could imagine a future situation too, where we could be, you know, have a, a genetic bank of uh, butternuts here in Edmonton, where we, we could be sending back and repopulating them in their native range. So it's like, now it gets even more complicated. Like, do we have, do we have an ethical obligation to, to grow out that plant? Um, but then it's, it's, you know, like, obviously, like you can't do that at the expense of, of local native and fauna. Um, and if they start struggling, do we have an ethical obligation to find homes for them? So I don't know. It's, it's going to be a really weird, interesting, um, kind of bumpy ride, I think. So much is changing and yeah. new questions on the table. Yeah, absolutely. So there's some other trees that you're fond of. Yeah. Yeah. Let's walk a little bit further down here. Um, <laughs> so I mentioned... I mentioned the, the, these apricots here, and this was kind of the first tree that I started propagating in any kind of quantity. These are, um, these are, were the seeds were collected for these from pits uh, on like three gorilla gardened trees on 75th Street. Okay. So the Capilano apricots, Capilano this apricot. is a Capilano yeah. freeway. There's Capilano 1, 2, and 3 were the three remaining trees. Capilano 1 died last year and was removed this year. So there's just Capilano 2 and 3. Okay. Um, and their story is interesting too. So this is, um, this is kind of the third or fourth generation in an experiment that was started by the Brooks Research Station in Southern Alberta, the uh, um, uh, Horticultural Research Station. And so sometime in the 30s, a man named Mr. Pitson, who was living in Harbin, China, mailed apricot pits to researchers at the Brooks Research Station. And they, I'm guessing, grew out those apricots and then collected seeds from them. And they planted them all across the province, including one of those researchers got a little bit like cheeky and planted three of them on the boulevard. And um, and, and so this would be a descendant of that tree, which was probably a descendant of a tree that the researchers grew out, which was a descendant of the tree in trees in, uh, in Harbin, China. I'm loving the stories on yeah. each of these trees, you know? And so it's like the, those, you know, there's, there's, there was probably more than three Capilano apricots. Now there's two, um, you know, but I was able to grow out Oh, I should, I should have done an official count, but probably a few hundred. And so they're spread around the city and a few of them are here, but you know, now that, that like, let's keep those, keep those, that story going. Um, yeah, it's kind of a, it's so uh, yeah, that was kind of the first tree that I, I started growing out being like, it's worth growing out because it's got this 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 story behind it we don't have a lot of apricots most people don't realize we can even grow apricots um and if these trees die like that's the end of this story and so it's like let's 
let's keep it moving. Um, and then it was like, okay, well, what else are we growing that's not very common, right? So there's some flowering quince in the city. Okay, let's try to grow some of those out. Um, there's, oh, some butternuts. There's not a lot of those. Let's uh, see what we can do there. A few mulberries? Well, let's try to grow some mulberries out and then, you know, get these stories going. This was it, a pretty organic process for you. Yeah, yeah. And then you start to kind of like, you do your research and you go, oh, I wonder if one of these would do here. Or you hear a little rumor that like, you know, there's, there's a... Uh, somebody in this neighborhood has this plant and you go and you try to find them and you try to find the plant and you know you try to find its story and and, and, and share that out as, as, as well so things like you know things like these these goji berries like you know they've got the story they're brought over by the Chinese community and they've you know they've they've uh, they've survived here and they've done well um, this little tree here is a an American chestnut and so it used to be the most dominant tree on the east coast of Canada. Um, they can live for like a thousand plus years. They get very big. They produce a tremendous amount of food. And in the early 20th century, uh, a blight showed up and wiped out, depending on who you talk to, five or six billion trees. And they essentially do not grow in their native range because they get the blight and they die. And so, you know, we're far enough uh, west and we're far enough north that there's no other chestnuts and no, and no chestnut blight. So, you know, do we, and if they can survive here, do we, should we grow some out? I don't know. Um, there's one there anyway. Uh, this little tree down here, which if you like blinked, you'd miss it. This is um, uh, Pinus aristata. It's it's a it's a bristle, Rocky Mountain bristlecone pine. Okay. And these are three years old. Wow. They're and they're so like tiny. yeah, they're like inches <laughs> inches tall. Um, but they have the ability to live for thousands of years. Right. And so uh, they are yeah, they're this super interesting slow growing pine tree that can live for thousands of years and. On Shrubscriber right now, there's a little bit of a conversation about doing a thousand, thousand year old tree project. And so the idea would be to grow out a thousand trees, something like this bristlecone pine, that each have the ability to live for at least a thousand years, and then to get them into the hands of a thousand Edmontonians and be like, okay, like, like let's like like plant this someplace that you think it's going to be able to survive for the next thousand years, mm -hmm. which <laughs> is a very hard thing to like think about. Uh, I mean, the city—if you come, you know—if you came here hundred years ago, yeah. it's very different than it is right now. And so, you know, multiply that by by ten, and you know, what kind of city do we have? So, for me, a project like that, it is as much about thinking about long-term thinking, getting people to think about long-term thinking as it is about the survival of the trees themselves. So what do you have to do? I think if you just gave a thousand people a thousand trees and was like, go plant them, see you later, I don't think the trees would necessarily do that well. But if you said, you know, let's plant them all on the same day, let's record our experience here, let's like make it an event like like part of a celebration 
Uh, maybe every year we, we host a celebration to celebrate another year of the, of the thousand trees. Um, you know, what are the stories that we tell ourselves about who we are and who these trees are so that we can propel them into, into the future? And um, I think when you're talking about stories that last a thousand years, you're starting to talk less about stories and you're starting to, starting to talk more about like, like a mythology, right? Like how do you create a mythology around the trees? And this is where I think actually religions probably have a lot to teach us is how do you, you know, if you're talking about religions, you're talking about institutions that have been around in one way or another for very long periods of time. And there aren't a lot of examples of that, of, of that human institutions that have that kind of, that kind of longevity. And so I, I'm not talking about making a religion around the trees themselves, but how do you, how do you pour enough meaning and pour enough narrative into those plants so that it has, so that each generation wants to tell that story to the next generation and you get something that has the potential to live for that long. Um, well, I feel in a way it's a, a work of uncovering the story. You oh, know, for sure. Uh, that that it's there already, uh, but we've maybe struggled to have the language, or or to have the language connected to this tree that will exist that long, yeah. and and how we are related <laughs> to it. Yeah, absolutely. And so, I I think it would be a really I think it's one of those projects that is like, when I'm on my deathbed, I will be upset if I don't do it. So. <laughs> Need to try to get the get the one the one thousand thousand year old tree project going. Um, yeah, it's. I, re I read the popular book Hidden Life of Trees, and oh yeah, um, great book. And I think what impacted me most is he was in like the, he talked a lot about the beach uh, and how long they live and and the sort of stories of the forest and and I, I just thought we don't think that no long no. Um, we think maybe 80 years and and our typical culture doesn't there are other cultures that are you know talk more about ancestors yeah. and you know seven generations um our our culture tends to be pretty you know one life cycle focused um but i i heard him or i heard the trees sort of inviting us into that longer yeah there's stretch. there's an organization in this in san francisco that i really like called the long now foundation hmm. Um, and so they ha kind of have this idea that, you know, like our, the, when most people think of the now, like it's often like, it's like next week and, and like, like last week and next week, right? It's like, it's sort of the, the period of time in which they're living, right? And maybe you can get people to think a little bit longer on the scale of like a generation or two. Um, and... You know, so, so they, they exist as an organization to foster long-term thinking and they, they picked this, this period of time of uh, 10,000 years because it's sort of this, it's like 10,000 years ago you kind of have, you know, like permanent human settlements sort of uh, getting established across the planet and so what would it be like to think in that kind of length of time and how do, it seems like, like the the solutions to the problems or, or, the, or the things that you choose to engage in change depending on 
the the length of the now in which you're kind of living and sort of if you if you're thinking of this week and next week or if you're a politician and you're thinking about like this election cycle you know the scale of the problems or the scale of the solutions that were that you're adopting will change and you know let's let's take a look at something like climate change like it's a problem that started you know at the industrial revolution 150 years ago like what if we looked at that problem and we said, okay, this is probably, it's probably going to take us another 150 years to figure this out. And that sort of changes the way, and that's not to say that like we can't do things now or we shouldn't do things now or that it's not urgent. But I think if we say, okay, we need to fix climate change by 2030, oh my God, that seems like it's impossible. But if you think, okay, no, we need to like mitigate the worst of it like as soon as possible, but we're really not going to like, you know, let's, 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 we've got lots of long-term solutions that we can also, um, adopt. Uh, yeah. So I think, I think trees definitely force you to think that way. You know, if you're, I see 400 year old elms planted in, you know, developments that probably are going to have a life expectancy of 30 or 40 years. And so, um, I mean, I'm glad those trees are planted. I hope they don't come down in 30 or 40 years when a new developer buys it and, and sticks something else on there. The, the idea behind the thousand year trees, I think is just like, to get people to think about their life and their decisions in the context of like a thousand years um, or the development of the city in that context. Uh, I also think there's an element of like things sort of feel a little dystopian at the moment and it's probably always been that case I think for as long I think you could pick like any point in history and be like how are things going and they'd be like ah it feels a little dystopian at the moment <laughs> um, so I don't want to like like I don't want to downplay our challenges but I also don't want to like be all doom and gloom I think what I like about trees is it saying like oh, the future can be greener. And here's proof. It's like this tree has the ability to live a thousand years from now. And so planting a thousand, thousand year old trees is actually like a little bit of a, like it's a suggestion that maybe the year, maybe Edmonton 3021 might be a really green and abundant and, and beautiful place to live. It doesn't have to be a dystopian nightmare. And uh, you know, we watch, I don't know, it's like, you can watch a lot of science fiction movies. It's always somebody traveling back in time to like make a change so that the present can be better. It's like, no, 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 we are the time travelers. We are in the future's past and we can make decisions now that make the, that make the future better. It's like, we're there. It's like, we can, we can, we can, we can do that. Um, and I realize we don't have the benefit, the science fiction benefit of hindsight, but you know, what we can do is we can say, Will this decision, you know, increase options? Will this decision increase connections? Will this decision, you know, potentially lead to a, a, a greener, more abundant place or, you know, healthier, more abundant communities? Um, I think all you can really do is increase options for the future and then hope that they pick the option that increases options for their future and, and kind of play it forward. But there's something about planting any tree, let alone a thousand year old tree that forces you to think about time differently. So. 
The other thing I'd love to do with the trees, and this is like maybe a little bit tongue in cheek, but if you could hand the trees out for a $10 donation and then take that $10,000 and throw it into an endowment fund and just let the interest accrue on that for the next thousand years, um, you'd, you'd ha you could have a, a financial tool for the trees to be able to maintain themselves. Or maybe like it's, it's 800 years from now and one of the trees is gonna get cut down for development and uh, the tree ends up hiring a lawyer and like buying the land that it's on and being like, sorry, not today, my friends. <laughs> I own myself and the land I'm on, go build somewhere else. That's amazing. It's, yeah. uh, I feel like that note of hope is a good place to end our conversation. And Yeah. Um, uh, one final question, where are you gonna plant your next tree? Oh, that's a great question. Um, <laughs> well, the whole point of Shrubscriber is to get these trees into the hands of community groups. And uh, I've been having some really great conversations with uh, different community leagues and uh, different schools. And so there's, there's groups either wanting to add trees to their community gardens or to you know, start a food forest on the church or the school ground. And so I, I don't know if I can pick a, a specific spot, but um, the Shrubscriber community has officially funded about 160 trees. So I would like to get some of those in the ground this fall into some of those spaces and, uh, and then continue that into the spring. So I don't know, but uh, generic answer in a, in a school or a community um, space. Wherever there's a green spot that might stick around for a while. That might stick around for a while, yeah, especially if it's a bristlecone pine. Mind you, these are slow growing, so you have, uh, you probably got about 50, 100 years before it gets too big to, to move. Yeah, they really, um, I have a friend who's also a subscriber, uh, Justine um, uh, Jenkins, and she, 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 she likes to say they really start taking off around year 300. So. <laughs> Anyway, <laughs> yeah. I, I feel like we have someone at our church who has one in their backyard. Yeah, um, they are, I don't know there where are they around it. town. Yeah, 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 in the Fulton area. Well, thank you, Dustin. This is really great. Um, yeah, lots to think on. Some things I've heard before, but I, I feel like you fleshed them out in a uh, way that was helpful to me. So um, great. And Thanks. I suspect for others. Thank as you. Well. Um, I love having these conversations, so thank you for and, um, indulging. Should mention, you do have a website where people can buy your trees. Yes. Forest City. Forest City Plants, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, Forest City Plants for folks to, who, who want to buy a tree. Uh, and then if folks want to um, buy a tree for a community uh, or, or school and carry on these kinds of weird conversations, then, um, yeah, they can find uh, the shrub scriber community at shrubscriber.com. And yeah. I'm a member of that as well. So the first if, member, if you're, the, any you're, questions. you're the, you're <laughs> the very first member of subscriber. <laughs> Happy to be so. <laughs> so. Thank you very much for that. So great. Yeah. Thanks Dustin. Yeah. You're very welcome. This is fun. The music used in this podcast is by permission from the work of local musician, Aaron Parker. Thank you for listening. May we truly come to know how the land wishes us to live here.